Welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name is Paul. I'm one of the leaders here. Really, really, really good to, to see you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, can you open them up at Nehemiah chapter 11? We're in Nehemiah 11 through to um, verse 26. So 11, Nehemiah 11 through to 12, 26. We're not going to work our way through all of it, but it'd be good to have it open in front of you so you can see the bits that I'm going to be referring to. If you're new here, can I extend that welcome that Ben's just gave us? Really good to see you this morning. Really good to see you this morning. You actually joined us towards the end of a series on Nehemiah. We've got three weeks, three weeks left in it. So let me just catch us up to speed to, to make sure we're all in the same, same place. So basically what happens in the book of Nehemiah, you've got the first half of the book where God's people, they return um, from, from Persia and they come back to Jerusalem. What they do in the first half, they together rebuild the walls of the city. And then the second half of the book, what happens is you get the spiritual formation of the people. And the last chapter that we've just gone through, chapter 10, last week, what we saw is that God's people make promises. They make promises to walk faithfully as God's people. And it, the, the chapter closed with verse 39 with this big promise that they would not neglect the house of God, the temple, the place where God's presence was. And chapter 11 and 12 that we're going to look at through today and part of next week shows how they went about it. So today what we're going to do is look at the, the first part of, well, chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. And next week we'll um, close off chapter 12. And what I'm going to do, as I said, if you look at the passage, you'll see why I'm going to select key sections for us. And what I would really encourage you to do is go home over this coming week and just have a read of it. Read these, read these names and read what it is that, that, that God has shown us here. So let me read and then I'll pray. In fact, let me pray before we read, and then I'll read for us. Father, we thank you so much that we get to even sing that song just then. Thank you, Father. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we get to gather. Even this moment, this very moment right now is a gift of your grace, that we get to gather as your people under the sound of your word. And we just pray by the wonderful gift of your Holy Spirit who shows us, reminds us, and draws us in and through your Son, the Holy Spirit, into your presence. Father, just help us this morning. Help us this morning to understand what it is that you've got for us, to, to be challenged, to be changed, to be transformed as your people. We need you, Father. Amen. Verse 1, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his own property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So what we see here, first of all, right off the bat, is the city of God being populated. So Jerusalem itself as a city is a holy city to the, to the Jewish people. And it's really, really important to them. You see it all the way through God's word. And the question is why? We get a, a pointer to that and clarity on that in Deuteronomy 12, 5 to 7. It'll be up on the screen for us. Where it says this, but you shall seek, this is God speaking to his people through Moses, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd, and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake." 
in which the Lord, your God, has blessed you. God's really clear. He doesn't leave us to wonder about how to come to him and how to worship him and how to come before him. He makes it really, really clear for us. There's a place, there's a way. And that place for the people of God in the Old Testament was Jerusalem, where the temple was, where God's house was, as it's referred to here. And the people there, they rightly wanted to see Jerusalem restored for the sake of God's name. And for that to happen, they realized that, well, people need to live there, don't they? And it seems that not many did. Just a few chapters back, chapter 7, verse 4, we read that the city was wide and large, but the people in it were few, and no houses had been built. And it seems that it wasn't really ideal for people to live in Jerusalem. People would rather not live there. So they had to actually draw lots. And the reason they probably wouldn't want to live there for, would have been for a, a, a number of reasons. First of all, they would, they would have probably preferred to have lived where they'd built their own lives. Maybe they'd owned some land and gone back for the generations through their family lines. Places where they would have already built up social connections of family and friends and communities. A place where they were actually comfortable. But the city itself would have come with costs. The cost of living would have been higher, more difficult in the city. It would have been more dangerous for them. Remember that as they're moving through this period of time through Nehemiah, the walls weren't there. There were people actually declaring that they wanted to kill them and attack them, so they're open to attack. And what we see here is that leaders, they've taken that, that step of faith and sacrifice, so the leaders had stepped forward, they lived there. Okay, the leaders had shown faith first, they'd, they'd modeled faith and sacrifice and risks, and not just them, but they'd also gone with their families. Let's not forget the families that have gone with the leaders. And what they do, they cast lots for others to move. This would have been like small stones or little pieces of wood that, that for us we just associated with dice and luck and gambling. But actually for the, the Jewish people, they actually believed that, that Yahweh, God, was involved in the process as they cast the lots. And a tenth of the population was chosen. This is a, 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 like a tithing of God's people. And the people who go, they're not begrudging. They're not resentful. The passage actually describes them as willing. Verse 6, they're described as valiant. These people are actually honored as people who are courageous, people of determination. So, so just pause there and think of that for a minute because these people clearly have to make such a decision. They clearly have a desire to honor God, to be obedient to God, to serve God and to serve his people. And I think that's really interesting because you can see what people believe. You can see what people value in the decisions and the choices they make the priorities that they will build their lives, life upon. These people, their words and their actions, they matched up with each other in sacrificial service. They clearly valued God's name. They clearly valued God's people. They clearly valued God's city. And that was poured out through the choices that they make. They were dying to self in service to God and service to others. So that bigger picture, that bigger story was more important to them their own, than their own personal comfort. And if we're honest, we understand this. There aren't many more decisions more impactful than where you live or what you do in and with your own house. See, chapter 9, if we were to step back a bit, what we see is that the people, they realize how far away they were and how far away they'd become as a nation and as a people. And so what we're witnessing here, I think, and what is being displayed here is, is a spiritual growth, is a step towards health. And it's seen in a, in a moving back to center, a back to Jerusalem, a back to God's presence, a back to God's people, a back to serving God's people. 
And then what happens as you pour through, if you were just to look ahead for the next chapter and a half, you'll see it's mostly a, a, a list of names. And it's mainly the people who are living in, in Jerusalem. And the focus in this name, this list of names that we have in front of us, is the leaders in the community. And they're actually listed, they're listed with their jobs, their areas of service that they do. And so what we see here is actually a community which is ordered around the presence of God, ordered around the house of God where they would have experienced God's presence. So I just want to take a moment just to highlight some of the things that are being shown through this passage. And there's some really distinct and unique things that God has shown. So first of all, we're going to see Levites, a lot of them. 11, 3, 15, 22, 12, 1, 8, 22, 23. We see lists of Levites in these passages. So what's that? What's a Levite? So in Genesis, right at the start of the Bible, we read that Jacob, he had 12 sons. And these 12 sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's third son was Levi. And so Levites were the, Levites were the tribal name for the descendants of the sons of Levi. See, what we're going to read in the passage here, you read that there are people not just from Levi, but from Judah and from Benjamin. But the Levites were quite a, a unique group in all the tribes of Israel. They had no land. So the Levites, they were distributed in 48 different cities throughout the land so that everyone had close access, access to teachers of God's law because part of their role would be to teach God's law. And they were supported so they could do this full time and do this amongst the people. They were supported by the tithes of God's people. But, but just hold that there for a second because I want to come back to, to the Levites. Because what we also read about then are priests. We read about them in the verses there, 11, 3, 10 to 14, 12, 1 to 6, 12 to 21. A load of priests being named. There's a lot of priests here, a lot of them. So how are the priests different? Well, in a way, they're, they're not. But, but let me just explain, explain the relationship between priests and Levites. So the priests, they were from the tribe of Levite. Okay, they were descendants of Levi. But they were specifically descendants through a guy called Aaron. Now, Aaron was Moses' brother. Remember when we went through the Exodus? Moses' brother, Aaron. So all the descendants of Aaron are the priests. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, will be the only ones who will perform the sacrifices in the temple. We read here they are workers in the temple, the protectors in the temple. In fact, verse 14 tells us they're warriors. They would have also been trained in warfare in the temple. And so the Levites and priests, there's an interconnectedness to their service. So the, the priests were descendants of, of, of Aaron who performed the sacrifice, and the, the high priest would have been drawn from that line. And the Levites were the men of Levi who weren't of Aaron's descent, but also were of Levi's descent, and they would assist, they would assist the priests in their work of the temple. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? Okay. So that's the relationship between the two. And the Old Testament describes it for us. Just put the 1 Chronicles 9, 28 up for us, please, and I'll thank you. What we read there, it says some of them, this describes the, the roles that the Levites had. Some of them had charge of the utensils of service. Okay, I want you to pay really close attention here because I think there's something wonderful going on here. Some of them had charge of the utensils of the service, but for they were required to count them when they were brought in and taken out. So some of them, they were looking after the things of the temple. You know, just the stuff of the temple, the things that they would use, they would clean them and count them. Others of them were appointed over the furniture and over all the holy utensils, also over the fine flour, the wine, the oil, the incense, the, the spices. So they were moving things, they were moving furniture, they were setting up things in the rooms. 
Others of the sons of the priest prepared the mixing of the spices. And Mattatiah, one of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, was entrusted with making flat cakes. Also, some of their kinsmen of the Kohathites had charge of the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. So they were making stuff. They were baking cakes. They were preparing spices. They were working together in groups, in teams. They were preparing things for the house of God. I just think that's a wonderful picture that God opens up and says, look, this is what they're doing. Normal activities. And so we, we see other categories of Levites. We see the gatekeepers, 11.19 and 12.25. These are our descendants of, of Levites. They were the Levites who were the guards, like the ushers. They would protect the purity of the temple, the building itself. They would have charge over the stores where everything was kept, who went in and out. It's really interesting in 1 Chronicles 23. Um, chapter 5, 1 Chronicles 23, 5, what you read is that David, in David's time, at the height of all that was going on, there was 4,000 gatekeepers. In fact, we read that there was 4,000 musicians as well. 4,000 musicians. Imagine that, Michael. You'd like that, wouldn't you? And then the singers. So the, the singers who sang in the temple were Levites. They were of Levitical descent, 11, 22, 23, 12, 8. So they were the musicians that were responsible for the worship services in the temple. They were all from the tribe of Levi. And what they would do, they would compose as well the songs. They would compose what they sang, the choruses, and they would compose instrumentally. And what stands out in verse 22 is that the leader of the Levites was actually a musician. And I think that's great. That just highlights for us, doesn't it, the importance of praise and worship and thankfulness in the house of God, the place of God, relationship with God is categorized and defined by celebratory rejoicing, praise and worship. In 1117, we get leaders in praise and prayer. Mataniah, he led the praise, we're told, specifically by giving thanks. There's even in 1224 something that's called, and I might say this wrong, forgive me, I've been corrected twice, antiphonal and antiphonal, I don't know which one it is, but what that is is you get this call and response of people standing in different parts, singing and responding one to another with praise and with thankfulness and with joy, watch by watch we're told, so they would do it continually, it's like a spiritual battle and a protection and a rejoicing, they would do it continually with each other in the temple areas. And then we have temple servants, 11, 3, and 21. Now, now, I'm including these because it's thought that these aren't of Levitical descent. But I think it's another beautiful picture because many commentators see these as foreigners dedicated to the temple service, potentially Gibeonites. So what we have here in these verses is an historic account of a people. That's what it is, an historical account of a people of names. But what we get as we open this up and as we look at it and as you just have a little dive around, sometimes we can flick over these things so quickly. We don't want to read them, but if you were to just pause and to just look around and to just see what God is showing us here, we actually get an insight into how they lived. We get an insight into how they functioned. We get an insight into what these people live for, how they lived the patterns of their life, the values that they held to, the beliefs that spurred them on, the things that they were willing to die to sell for, the things that they were willing to reorder their life around. That's what we see here. And we also see something which is really obvious. It's a load of people being named. That's what's going on here. And on one level, it's seemingly insignificant people. The Bible has a lot of lists of names in different parts. You can see why the biblical authors use it in a number of different ways. So you see Genesis, you can see what he's doing and tracing this line back. You can see the Davidic king lines, you can see the gospel um, genealogies, and you can say, okay, I can see why that is. 
But here we just got a list of names. On one level, they're just not important. You know, we've never heard of them. I'm guessing most people here have not heard of the people who are in this list. Yet, God in His wisdom and His sovereignty and His grace has written down the name for us, for all of God's people, written it into eternity of the people who clean the utensils. He's written down the name in his word of the people who cut the grass. There's a, 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 I can't remember which verse it is, but there's a group of people who looked after the building. He's written down the name of the people who baked the cakes, who provided food, who served people, who moved chairs. Written down, recorded in his word, eternally significant in God's eyes. What a beautiful picture that is. What you do for God, what you do for his people, is seen, recognized, acknowledged, and valued by God himself. I just think that's beautiful. Don't miss what God is showing us here. And I think as we look at this passage, and we were to just back away for a second and to see it with a, a wide-angle lens, I think what we would see here is the people of Nehemiah's day, I think they're, they're trying to reach for something that they just, they just can't quite fully grasp, while also having something of like a, a foretaste of a future reality for God's people. See, the temple of God in Jerusalem, which was God's city, is where God had put his name. That's clear as we see that from the Old Testament. And God's people, they're not wanting to neglect the house of God, the presence of God with them. And so they set up as a community around what they value. They, they, they set up around it as a community of worship and a community of service. That's what we're seeing here, a community of worshipful service. That's this. But Nehemiah and the people will see soon enough they fail to be faithful to the promises that they just made. Even the priests themselves, they, they would, as they were doing the job that they were called to do, would actually have to atone for their own sin before the people because they were sinful themselves. The priestly line, the high priestly line would have to be passed on because they would all die. They had to keep a watch and have gatekeepers and people over the storehouses and people looking out for them. Why? Because there was a threat. There was a threat internally and there was a threat externally. There is a longing that is just sitting in this as well for something more. And that something more came 500 years later. Jesus Christ, God's son, he didn't just leave the countryside to go to a city. He left the perfection of heaven, purity, joy, life, to come to his people in brokenness, pain, suffering, and death. See, we saw it in Deuteronomy that God calls his people to meet with him. And to worship them in the place that he tells them to. In the way that he tells them to. And in the Old Testament, we see in Jerusalem through the temple, the house of God, that's where it is. But what that's doing is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the presence of God amongst his people. He is the, the house of God. He is the, the dwelling place of God. He is God in human form, God incarnate. He is where God has put his name. He is where humanity and God meet. And so these, these people all the way through the Old Testament, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the scribes, the high priest, even, they became so distorted and so far gone from what they were originally called to do that the workers in the very house of God were actually the ones who gave up the Son of God to be killed. And he became the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus came to God's people and he died in their place. 
But what we read is that God raised him up. The sacrifice was completed. And unlike those animal sacrifices in the temple that had to be repeated day after day and year after year, this sacrifice is once for all time. The temple curtain was torn. The, the, the curtain that only the priest could go past was torn in two. And Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the first fruits of a new creation was raised, fully human. And the Bible tells us that he ascended. He went up. So he went up not into an earthly temple, but we read that he goes up as our great high priest into the very presence of the Father forever. And what's being shown us here is that humanity is back in, in God's presence, in Jesus Christ. Humanity, full humanity back in God's presence for the first time since right the beginning. God has given us the place where he meets us and where we meet with him. He's given us the place where we serve him. He's given us the place where we worship and it's his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, exclusively, the way, the truth, the life. He's told us, he's given us, he's made it clear. We come to him, we come before him, we worship him, we praise him, we serve him in and through Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does, what God the Father and Jesus do, they pour out the Holy Spirit on all of God's people, the church, the people of God. And we read in the New Testament that we're made and become a new people. 1 Peter that we looked at last year has a, a really famous verse that we've spoken a lot, a, lot, a lot about. And it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God's people, God's children, we, the church, are a kingdom of priests. We now are a kingdom of priests. God's presence lives in us, so therefore we are ministers. We are servants, ministers in the house of God. That's what the church is. And what we do as well is you were to take a further step back on that wide-angle lens, you would see a glimpse of the whole Bible story just coming together here. Like the Russian dolls that you get where it goes bum, 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 all the way up. There will be a day, folks, when all that we have read here and all that we've experienced in this life will be seen in all its fulfilled glory, glory in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Bible, the way it ends, it ends with a picture of the city of God at the end of time. That's how the Bible ends. Let me just show you with Revelation 21 and 22, just some select verses. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. It's the language that's being used here. This is God's city. And what is God's city? The new Jerusalem. What is the new Jerusalem? Well, it's the bride. What is the bride? Well, it's the church, the people of God. Perfect, purified, a place of no sin, no pain, no death, with God in the new creation forever. That's what's being described for us here. Johnny, he goes on through the passages between what I'm about to read to describe the city, and the description is beautiful. 
It's a picture of just visual beauty and moral beauty, spiritual beauty. But then he goes on in verse 22 to talk about the temple, the temple being the house of God, the temple which is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God and humanity meet, the presence of God amongst his people. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you see that? Do you see what they're, they're reaching for and the reality that we get to see at the end of time? There's no temple. Because the end time reality for God's people is being forever in the presence of God. He is the temple and he fills this whole new creation. The whole new creation is a temple where God is with his people in perfect relationship. And the city itself is a place of light and safety, security, purity, perfection. You don't need to worry about gatekeepers. You don't need to worry about watching because there's no threats within or without. Why? Because God is in the midst of his people. That's what the people of Nehemiah are reaching for. And it, and it speaks at the end of this passage that if you believe in Jesus, it tells us that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. What does that mean? Well, let me just tell us what I think it means for us here today that I think we really need to hear today. It means that God knows you. If you believe in Jesus, he knows you. He's always known you. He's loved you before time began. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Not just a book of life, the Lamb's book of life. The people who he died for so that you could receive life. You have life and a future. It means that he knows every one of your days, including this glorious future that he has held out for you, that he describes for you, and that he's holding for you, and that he's prepared a place for you. It's amazing because John actually goes on to describe what this city is going to be like in Revelation 22, 1 to 5. God describes it for us through John. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God's city, a place of healing and restoration, a place of life, a place of vitality, is a temple with God in all of his glory, on his throne, and his people living in perfect worship, joy-filled service in this perfect temple, this perfect house of God. You see, what the people of Nehemiah's day were, were reaching for was that end-time reality. And we live now, right now, we can see Nehemiah's day because we've had it recorded for us by God. We can see where that day pointed towards through the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see the end time reality that God shows us 
of what it is all leading us towards, and we can see the now that we live in. It shapes us. You see, what we believe, what we value, what we hold to will be displayed in how we live and the choices that we make. If we believe the truth of the Old Testament, if we believe the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe the truth of the assurance of the future that is held out before us, and we believe the truth of who we are right now, that's going to shape everything that we do. So I've just got a couple of questions, a few questions to reflect on as we close. In light of our place, your place, my place, in this story, first question, are you willing to step out of your comfort zone in service to God and his people? We did here, don't we, right at the start, the people in Nehemiah's day, they were willing to be uprooted and move house, motivated by God's love for them, faithful, willing. The leaders have said, look, people need to move in. Okay, so then they cast lots and the people, they weren't holding on and reducing, walking away and ignoring them. They were like, okay, that's right. And they, weren't, they were doing it willingly, valiantly, determination with courage, motivated with God's love for them, motivated by this reality of what they held dear. Jesus Christ came for us while we were still sinners. He died to give every eternal blessing to us. And what does he do? He calls us to serve him, his people, and to love one another. So the question is, where do you draw the line between comfort and sacrifice in your decisions? Because we all do. Every single one of us will draw a line somewhere. And that line between comfort and sacrifice will move depending upon what we're going through and what we're willing to sacrifice or how comfortable we are or what we're going through in life. Where do you draw the line with your house? What you do with your house, how you use your house, both inside and out. Where do you draw the line with your job? How you use your job? Where do you draw the line with your finances and how you use them? The priorities and decisions that you make with your finances that you have. Where do you draw the line with your reputation? How much are you willing to put your reputation on the line? Because that's something that we need to consider as we step forward into this new time ahead of us. Where do you draw the line with family ties? People close to you that you might love. And relationships. Maybe God is actually calling you to move. Just a direct, direct jump off this page. Maybe God is calling you to move. The church, Cornerstone Church, Liverpool, there have been patterns where we've seen God blessing that reality. People moving here 14 years ago. I thought you said minus one, I think. <laughs> I think. Um, here 14 years ago, maybe 15. Moving to the Whittle, moving to Lark Lane moving to Kensington, moving to Oral Park. God has blessed those decisions for people as they've thought, no, there are not many bigger decisions other than moving house and moving to an area, especially the one that might not be desirable. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. But it might not be moving house. It might actually be moving out of your comfort zone. It might actually be something as simple as going talking to someone on the opposite end of church that you've not met before, that you think is new. It might actually be opening up your Sunday afternoon for having people back, people that are new to the church, people you know are struggling, people who are on the edge of things. It might actually be moving to, your, to talk to your neighbor that you've never spoken to, going knocking on the door and inviting them around. It might actually be opening your home in a way that you're just not comfortable doing. We all draw a line there, all of us. How far are you willing to open your home? Where's that line? 
Is it in the right place? Is it actually going to others' homes? Because that can be a wrestle for people as well. Going to other people's homes can be uncomfortable. It could be letting people stay. It could be having people around for lunch. It could be a certain type of person. We just need to be honest here. We draw a line. And we all draw a line between personal comfort and sacrifice. And what we're seeing here is a line that is being forced back because of the value of what God has done for them. And this is a good time to ask the question, in light of my place in God's story, that reality that we have just outlined, ask the question, have I drawn the line in the right place? Have I drawn the line in the right place? We've all drawn it, folks. We can't look at anybody else and say, you need to sort your line out. All of us draw a line somewhere. And we all need to ask. What God has given us is going to look different, different stages of life, different possessions, different family situations, different seasons of life, different stages of grief or whatever it is that we're walking through. We're all going to have to draw the line. But let's at least ask the question, is the line drawn in the right place? Secondly, we are a kingdom of priests. That's what God calls us in his word. God's presence lives in us. So we are, in our very identity, we are ministers. We are servants in the house of God. And all of us has a part to play, a role of infinite significance in service. Now, just let me highlight that using Romans 12, 1 to 8. It's a longer passage, but I think it's really important for us to, to get to grips with what is being said. I'll read it, and I'm not going to explain it because I think it's, it's quite obvious for us to understand what and how this links. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of who God is and what he's done for you, to present your bodies, everything you have, who you are, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but, by, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good? What is acceptable? What is perfect? Where is that line? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we Though many are one body in Christ and individual members one of another. That's us, Cornerstone Church. We are individual members one of another of the body of Christ in this place, globally and across time. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So if we have gifts, he's saying let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What is being called there is to see yourself on the wonder of the body of Christ, which is diverse. Different gifts, different characters, different competencies, different size of plates for what we can do. All of this, let's celebrate those things. And we are to give ourselves to serve the service of God and his people. And as we grow in our faith, what happens is our lives are oriented around God and his people. Every single person, every single brother or sister in Christ has value and significance. Every act of service and service that you do is significant. Everyone has a unique role to play. And God in his grace is calling us to service with our whole lives. Not to think of ourselves as higher look down on others for what they do. They're not doing as much as us. Or lower, look up to us and think, well, I can't be like them because I'm not gifted in that way. Both sides of those, they're both sides of the same coin, which ultimately is pride. But we're to give ourselves and our lives in service to God and his people in the way that we've been made, not in a different way, 
See, that second question I want to ask is, what does sacrificial service to God and the church look like for you? That word's really important, sacrificial service. What does sacrificial service to God and the church look like for you? We can all serve comfortably and give comfortably, but actually, what does sacrificial service look like? And where can you step into that today, this week? In what ways, in prayer, do you think that God is calling you to serve in the, the house of God? In what ways is God calling you to serve amongst his people? It might be here on a Sunday morning, but I'm talking through the week amongst the family that God has put you amongst. How do we serve each other? And what's stopping you? How can you use the gifts and the characters and the competencies that God has given you to be a blessing to everyone around you? Knowing that every area, every act, every means of sacrifice is valid. It's all seen. It's all acknowledged by God. We are, Paul says in Romans, to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what Romans 12 is calling to us. That future picture of Revelation 21 and 22, it shows a time when we are not going to have a conscious thought of dying to self again. It's not going to be a conscious thought because it's just going to happen. It's going to flow from us. We are going to be a community of worshipful servants. And we now, with God's help, in light of our place in God's story, are to walk that path of dying to self in service to God and his people. So as we come now to take communion, communion, by the way, has been brought, prepared by people this very morning, which I love, just a clear picture. People that you've not seen doing it have been here since half past eight, cutting these things up, mixing the, the juices, putting them all in, putting the things on the front there, carrying it through, making it look nice on the front. That's all been done by someone. It wasn't me. It was no, someone's done that. You haven't seen them. God has. And God has, and he's rejoiced over that. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Someone in the kitchen for half an hour, in the cold, <laughs> preparing this. Praise God. So as we come to share in this communion, let's sum this up. We actually entered into this eternal experience with God and his people, both forward to that glorious future, backward to Christ, onwards to Nehemiah's day, and right down through biblical history. We are a community of worshipful servants gathering in the house of God. And we receive the blessing of the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And we know as we do this that God meets with us, that God helps us, that God loves us. And so what we can do is we pass this bread and as we pass this wine, we can freely confess. We can receive a fresh forgiveness in Christ. We can ask for help. In these things, the, the roles or the tasks or the areas of life that we struggle to push that line between comfort and sacrifice forward, we can ask for help and say, God, help us to push that line. Help us to remove that line. See, spiritual growth is seen and moving closer to God and his people. And that's what this is. God has drawn us back again. He's reminding us again of what he's done for him. He's reminding us again of the centrality of who he is in our faith. Reminding us again of the centrality of the gospel. And so we affirm and we reaffirm, like we see in Nehemiah's day, in Nehemiah's time, our desire to serve God and his people. And we give thanks, knowing that Jesus Christ has done it all. That our service ultimately is never going to be perfect. We're always going to have desires and motivations that might be wrong in the midst of this. We're always going to do things that might not be quite up to scratch. Some things will do well, some things not. But what we know is that the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. And in and through him, God the Father looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant, because he is perfect. And so we can give thanks and we can praise as we look forward to that day when he returns. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take this. We're going to sing together, beholding Christ. We're going to sing about 
Jesus returning. We're going to sing about that day when we'll see him face to face. And we're going to, in light of that, affirm that actually we are effectively saying, look, I'm here, I'm in. Help me, Lord, to step forward. Raise your banner high. If you're not a believer here today, the Bible says that this is for Christians. We are partaking of the blessings of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would let this pass, please. If you want to talk to someone and ask questions, please come and speak to us. We love that you're here. If you want someone to pray with you, please throw your hand up and we'd love to pray with you. So as the bread and the wine goes round, let's be in prayer. Let's be thankful. Let's ask for help. And then let's respond in singing. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are such a gracious God. But Father, we can read these passages and we can see just the wonder of what you've done for us. But we can see that it came through a people. We can see that there's a story. We can see that there's a history and a narrative that we can read, Father. We can see what your people and how you've guided your people down through time. We can see how you came to bring about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time. We can get a glimpse by your spirit to that future reality of eternity. Father, I just thank you for that. Help us by your spirit to rejoice when we think of that future glory. And Father, I just pray that you would push down those realities, now the forgiveness we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ deep down into our souls so that, Father, right now we can step out and step forward in lives of sacrificial service. Father, help us to worship as we take this. Father, remind us of the things that we need to confess, knowing that we do it in liberation and freedom that it's gone because the Lord Jesus Christ took it all. Father, help us with courage and determination like the people read here to ask for help, to step forward, to step out, to step rightly in sacrificial service, worshiping you, serving you and serving your people. We love you, Father. We love you, Son. We love you, Spirit. Amen.